Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is writer Martha Cooley. Her new book is titled Guesswork, A Reckoning with Loss. Here's a bit of the description. Having lost eight friends in ten years, Martha Cooley retreats to a tiny medieval village in Italy with her husband to recover from what she terms the massacre. There on a particular paradise where bumblebees nest in the ancient cemetery and stray cats curl up on her bed, she examines a question most easily evaded and unavoidable, mortality. How do we grieve? How do we go on drinking our morning coffee, loving our life partners, stumbling through a world of such confusing, exquisite beauty? Linking the essays is uh, her escalating understanding of another more painful loss on the way, that of her ailing mother back in the States. Martha Cooley is author of the national bestseller The Archivist, also 33 Swoons. The Archivist was New York Times' notable book and a new and noteworthy paper book. And Cooley is currently a contributing editor at Public Space, a Public Space, rather. Her co-translations of Italian fiction poetry include Antonio Tabucchi's story collection, Time Ages in a Hurry. She's a professor of English at Adelphi University and divides her time between Queens in New York and Castiglione del Terziari in Italy. Martha Cooley, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks. And it's a pleasure to be here, Tom. Appreciate you uh, you being with us. Um, oh, oh, I neglected to ask you, do you have your book with you? I do. Okay, great. Um, perhaps I could have you read uh, just uh, just at the beginning here a, a passage, uh, page sixteen. Okay. Hopefully, um, the copy I have yes. matches up with the copy you have. Okay. And uh, this is uh, talking about um, this this sabbatical that you're taking with your husband. You're going to spend uh, over a year in in Italy. Right. Are you saying where it begins, it's a good thing? It's a good thing, yes. And then okay. over the page to end that section. Great. It's a good thing, this leave of absence, endorsed by parents, husband, friends, colleagues, and I tell myself I'm ready and able to take full advantage of it. Yet I'm aware that's not entirely true, for my accumulated losses have upended me. The sand in my hourglass keeps dribbling. It doesn't reverse direction. But I've come through what's felt like a strage, a massacre. And while death appears to be taking a break, for the moment anyway, from rat-tat-tatting my circle of family and friends, I'm still down in an emotional crouch, hands overhead. Admitting this makes me wince. After all, I haven't been gunned down. What am I complaining about? Yet despite the privileges of health, a happy marriage, and a gratifying job in academia, For the past 10 years, my life work, my writing, has felt invalid in both senses of that word, weak and spurious, feeble and unconvincing. The urge to just do it that used to counteract self-doubt won't buoy me. Each day, shame indicts me. Prior to their departures, none of my deceased friends ever made death the fall guy, nor did they whine about whatever they weren't accomplishing. I picture them conferring and agreeing, too bad she can't wake up. Hmm. So tell me about this. Was it La Strage, the, the massacre? It's, it's a lot of friends who've died in a, in a space of time. It, it is a lot of friends. It was a lot of friends. And, and, and several of them were also writing colleagues. So the losses were keen both at the emotional level and at the professional level. And um, they, they were you know, in such succession and of different kinds, too, different illnesses and, in one case, a suicide. So, in another case, a drug overdose. So there, there, were, there was a lot to contend with, and I'm not alone in this. I don't pretend to be the only person who's gone through severe losses. But there came a point where um, I needed to sort of contend with the fallout from it, and in particular the fallout for my creative life which had sort of ground to a halt, or so it felt, as a result of, of dealing with this. There was sort of inadequate time to process, if you will, and, and perhaps too much, not time, but too much um, on my part, focusing on um, the, the what might have bends and also the what might I have done as well. Because I think when you lose people, you have to contend, of course, with your own Mortality and with that tick-tocking of the clock. So the sabbatical was that occasion to have a look more closely and in a very, very different context 
at something that I had sort of end run. You know, I'd, I'd mobilized and done my job and kind of soldiered on, but I hadn't done the actual work of contending with these losses. And so there, there I found myself able to do so. Do you think we, uh, I don't know, I, I, I guess that contending with those losses, something that we have to do, you can't go around, you can't, I mean, we, we do cope that way or not cope that way, don't we? In a, you know, we don't deal with it sometimes, but at a certain point in the end, you have to, you have to deal well, with it. Well, I, I mean, my own sense, and I can only speak for myself here, I'm, I'm not a uh, professional grief counselor or bereavement expert, but what I, what I find is with these matters of very strong emotion, one can run but not hide, so to speak. They, they come back to find me if I um, try to end run them. And that's gradually but ineluctably what felt like was happening for me. I just um, needed to stop for a time and, and look more closely. And, and the book ended up quite without my intending it, because I didn't, I didn't sit down to write either personal essays or, God help me, a memoir. <laughs> that was not um, on my docket uh, when I started my sabbatical. A novel was on my docket and a translation. But as the essays started coming quite sort of unbidden, I realized that they were just giving me an opportunity to dig into this work from a, a different vantage point, in a different voice, from a different sort of aesthetic um, place as well. Um, and that, you know, the, these, this was sort of my psyche's way of urging me to contend, um, but to try to do it uh, through the only means I really have, which is writing. You applied the phrase "God help me" to memoir. Do you, do you, do you not? Not time for a memoir from you, or or um, you do too, were flooded with memoirs. Why do you use that phrase? Oh, what? That's a good question. That's I guess it's kind of revealing of a of a, a still a lingering sort of ambivalence about the genre, um, brought on in part by the fact that um, I'm not always captivated by memoirs. I love the ones I love. I love what works well. What seems to be um, both at the level of the writing and at the level of the exploration, rich and strange and <laughs> compelling and startling. But I'm not um, always captivated because I sometimes feel that there's just a little too much noodling around with the details of a particular given situation that may not be sufficiently revelatory for the person you know, whose situation it isn't. So that, that always felt like the challenge for memoir, and I never, I never had a strong urge to write memoiristically. But the personal essay these days is a very rich form, and it, it comprises memoir, autobiographical musings, but it, it also gets into a lot of other realms as well, or does a lot of sort of combinatory work, that plus certain ideas or other experiences that aren't strictly those of the self. And I, I guess as I began to contemplate where I was living for a year this you know, medieval village, deserted and beautiful and decrepit and cat-filled, I thought, oh, there's plenty here that isn't me that I can write about. But darned if I didn't find that in writing about it, I was also doing some of this contending work. Um, and, and that was the gift of the memoir form to me, unexpectedly, that it allowed me some discoveries that might have been trickier for me to have at um, if I had tried to do them in fiction or poetry, I don't know because I didn't. But there it was. I, once I got embarked, it was like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> hmm. I could keep writing these essays, but they still weren't a book until more than halfway through, and then I had to start threading them, making them work as a book. You call uh, this uh, you call it a sabbatical, but you also use an Italian term. Yeah, what, yeah, what, cesura. Ce yeah. Cesura. What What do you mean there? Well, you know, musically, it's a sort of it's a it's a rhythmic break or division, and um, because the deaths themselves felt sort of rhythmically arriving, um, I felt that I needed this pause in the rhythms of my life. And academics are fortunate when they've worked a sufficient amount of time and achieved a certain level in their careers, they do get these sabbaticals, which I think the general public thinks we all sit around and sort of drink coffee and do the New York Times crossword puzzle. But they're actually a marvelous time to get the kind of work done that's more difficult to do when one is teaching a lot and 
doing the usual things that academics do at school. So there I was in the middle of nowhere without faculty meetings or teaching obligations. And this pause in the rhythms of my days um, was initially sort of discomforting. One is used to one's rhythms, and having them interrupted is, is strange. Um, but then as I, as I dug in, I began to realize that the things that were coming to me unbidden, like snatches of poems and um, memories with my mother, things that were sort of alongside the strage, the massacre, were just as important and could kind of sit alongside um, this theme of loss and of how one regroups after loss. And so that's what began to happen. I, I didn't want to write a downer book about losing a lot of people, bam, bam, bam. As I say, other people have endured that, and that in itself is not the thing to do a whole book on it. There has to be heading somewhere else as well, which for me it was toward renewal and um, toward a kind of seizure of a new adventure in my life. So that's what began to emerge gradually as I wrote. The, the first essay is called The Stain. And you have, a, you have an interesting, and the central focus of that essay is, is your, or the event, is you're deciding to go visit the cemetery in this, yeah. in this town. Yeah. Understandably, uh, in the essay you find out it's not quite for the reasons you might have thought or I might have thought approaching the essay, that you didn't want to go to the cemetery. I guess on the surface you've lost a lot of friends and... Uh, Cemetery is a place of death, right? Or, right, right. Um, I wonder if I could have you read another passage, uh, page six. Yeah, hang on just a second here. Because the, 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 um, the visit turns out different than I was expecting, and maybe different than you were expecting. Uh-huh. Starting at the top? Yes. Okay. A cheerful cemetery, it seemed to me, with all that hum, with that hum all around, unremitting, did the dead contribute to it? Did they spend all day adding their voices to the chorus, get their rest at night, and begin again at daylight? Sun, hum, shade, a mix of tranquility and sprightliness. The dead here had a nice deal with none of the lugubriousness or sententiousness of so many cemeteries. Their simple marble headstones were beautifully carved, unblemished by kitsch. A bit of bird song provided the sole counterpoint to the bees. Then I heard a quick high wail, and a cat trotted toward me from one shady corner, tail aloft in greeting. As it, it was a small tabby, its coat a mottled gold. As it approached, the cat slowed, then dropped gracefully to the ground and rolled over, exposing a pure white belly. When it sat up again, whining delicately, I saw an exposed patch of skin behind one ear. Mites, mange, or a cat fight had given the cat a bit of trouble recently. That circle of flesh wasn't superating, but it looked painfully raw. I'll bring you something to eat next time, I told the cat, now that I know you're here. Shall I keep going? Uh, yes. Okay. The cat took this as a benign signal, performed another rollover, and allowed my fingers to graze the very end of its tail as it slipped past me to a nearby patch of shade, which happened to be provided by Amelia Pizzi. Her tombstone was modest in size, unlike that of Liliana Di Negro, who slept in a large berth in the wall and whose name was inscribed in elegant cursive. I wandered a bit, reading names and dates, supplying stories for the residents. This one might have died of that awful flu in 1918. This one could have been killed in World War II. That one must have been a kid in a car accident, or with cancer, or malaria, or meningitis, or... They're not your dead, I said to myself as the stories, inadvertent and uninvited, began piling up in my head. You don't have to grieve for them. You don't know a soul here. It's not your job. The cat atop the grave licked its front paws with serene thoroughness. Yeah, a lot going on, of course. That, that to begin with, the, you one of the surprises you encounter is there's an apiary there, right? There's yes. there's bees yeah. busily going about their lives, as you exactly. sang, just doing it, right? Exactly. Uh, and work that ethic. hum so threw me. I thought, what could be making a hum in the middle of nowhere in the countryside in Italy? And and to find that it was bees, and and so oblivious, of course, to their context. So I was amused by that. 
we get into uh, maybe perhaps you can confirm this a little bit into the title. The title is guesswork. Um, you're speculating. You're seeing these uh, headstones. Uh, Might have been killed in World War II. Must have been killed a uh, kid in a car accident, cancer, or malaria, or meningitis. That so that or, right? You're yeah. you're speculating. You're in, you're engaging yeah. in, in guesswork. Yeah, all the way through, I think, and that was freeing for me. That um, there there was no need here to. Um, be doing anything other than sort of asking certain questions. There was no need to produce anything remotely like answers. And because, too, I was operating in, in both Italian and English, and I, don't, I speak good Italian but not fluent. And my husband, who is Italian, speaks very good English but not entirely fluent. So our, our linguistic life together is, is mixed and... When I'm over there, of course, I, I need to rely on him for moments when I get myself in a little trouble <laughs> in terms of comprehension. But when he's not around and I'm on my own navigating Italy in Italian, there's, there's always a certain amount of guesswork there as well. And it's a pleasure, and it's also a provocation for me um, as, a, as a person and, a, and as a writer both, you know. So I, I realized that I was sort of thinking about translation a lot, both because I was translating a, a text, Tabuki's stories, but also because I was having to translate for myself. And then there was the animal world, you know, these cats and their ways of communicating. And a lot of the book turned on that question of, of translation, as a lot of it turned on the question of seeing and being seen, what I could see clearly, what I couldn't, how I saw myself, how I was seen. And that relates directly to my mother, of course, who's a central figure in this narrative, because she was blind. And uh, so it was inevitable that the question of sight and seeing would arise, too. Let's uh, take a brief break. When we come back, I want to talk about your mother, uh, you know, central figure uh, in the book. In fact, you, you did dedicate this book to her, right? I did. Um, so we're talking with uh, Martha Cooley. Her uh, interesting new book is Guesswork, A Reckoning with Loss. It's uh, out now, and uh, she is a professor of English at Adelphi University. In, uh, I think it's uh, Adelphi is in Long Island? It's in Garden City, New York, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we'll have more, much more. Uh, we're spending the hour with Martha Cooley on Access Utah. More following this break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. The early bird gets the worm. Common North American sparrows called dark-eyed juncos assert their superiority early, says USU ornithologist Kimberly Sullivan. Short-term benefits may accrue to young birds that attain high dominance status early, she says, because juvenile birds that socially dominate their peers are more likely to be successful and efficient foragers, which helps them avoid predators. In addition, the assertive birds tend to be of a healthier weight and have higher oxygen-carrying capacities. These benefits make them more likely to survive harsh winters and become prolific breeders. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. We're back with Martha Cooley. Uh, her book is Guesswork, A Reckoning with Loss. It's uh, out now, a series of essays. And uh, here's uh, a bit of the uh, description uh, of the book. She had experienced uh, what she called the massacre, having lost eight friends in ten years, and she retreats to a tiny medieval village in Italy to take a uh, sabbatical, or as she calls it, a, uh, what do you call it, chesura? A chesura. A chesura. A pause. <laughs> a, a pause. And yeah. there, as is described, in a peculiar paradise where bumblebees nest in ancient cemeteries, stray cats curl up on her bed. She examines the questions of mortality. How do we grieve? How do we go on drinking our morning coffee, loving our life's partners, stumbling through a world of such confusing and exquisite uh, beauty? And uh, we're talking about uh, this with Martha Cooley on the program uh, today. So before we went to break, 
Well, you uh, broached the subject of, of your mother that talked about some of the themes in the book, uh, seeing and being seen. Also get into uh, um, metaphors and, uh, and beautiful descriptions of touch. Because I think after your mother went blind, and I think, what, early, early on in your life, was it? Yes, and pretty early in hers as well. She had a rare degenerative eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa, which, depending on the person, can take as little as six months, and in my mother's case, as long as almost 10 years to bring a person to full blindness. So my mother did have some time to adjust, um, but this was an event that began when I was eight or nine years old. Um, So by the time I left high school, she was, for all intents and purposes, blind. And she was also quite hard of hearing because there's a syndrome that sometimes accompanies the illness that um, compromises hearing. So she had a lot to <laughs> contend with. Mm. It sounds like she didn't, you know, she didn't indulge in self-pity. She had a, a she no. had a wry, wry wit, kind of yes. de- deflecting yes. any self-pity. Uh, it's interesting the the passage where you describe how you communicated with your mother. Of course, uh, you know, sight wasn't a part of it, so touch became. Interesting, important. Yes, absolutely. Um, those of your listeners who are have vision impairment or know people who do will will quickly relate to this. That a, a, a basic, fundamental way of connecting to someone who can't see is is by touching them. And my mother had a very refined sense of touch before she lost her sight. She was a pianist and became a weaver after she lost her sight. She was just very gifted manually. And she wasn't a professional pianist, but she played piano and loved it, um, and she knit. So she was manually dexterous, and um, she loved fabric, and that led her to the knitting and the weaving. And so um, touch was the, the tactile was very important to her, and we would greet each other by touching. You know, I would, I would always touch her as I spoke to her so that, she would know I was there, that the, the, it's, it's helpful to know kind of how close the voice is, and if there's a hand right on your arm, you know the person who's speaking to you is right there. So this is just a, an, an essential part of my dialogue with her that is so imprinted upon me that I knew it would, it would have to be something I could uh, render in the book somehow. And I was also in a very um, tactile environment. I tried to describe Castiglione, our village, um, it's it's stoniness and the different colors and textures of stone there, the presence of different kinds of vegetation, mosses, lichen, things that that give texture and make touching feel really inviting. You want to touch around there, so um, that made its way into the book inevitably. Mm-hmm. Now you you describe the the interesting ways in which you not being able to be seen by your mother perhaps shaped your relationship or, or affected it? Uh, yeah. Growing up years, you know, she couldn't see the colors in which you dyed your hair, for example. Um, right. You know, right. um, that, that seeing and perceiving in that way, very important, especially to mothers and daughters. Yes, and, you know, one, one gets used to whatever one has in one's family. So to the persons in the family, everything is normal. There is no objective normal. Um, and it took me time to sort of note that mothers and daughters around me did things differently, had different kinds of opportunities, but also lacked certain opportunities that I had for a kind of intimacy with my mother that was more touch-based. Um, and, you know, I, I think as I began to pull this essay together, I found myself re, um, returning frequently to this trope of seeing and being seen. And um, there were cats in the village that, because they were inbred, were susceptible to eye disease and were going blind. That was tricky for me to watch and to watch um, feline mothers who will, you know, frequently just sort of abandon um, blind kittens to deal with it on their own. That's it's the way of the world. It's the way of the animal kingdom. And so this, you know, gave rise to a lot of questions for me, not not unexamined before. Certainly, I've been on this territory for quite a few decades. But um, you know, questions about my mother's strategy for coping herself, and therefore what she expected of us. Um, 
a certain kind of um, just buck up, uh, carry on, um, you know, mentality governed our family. And so certain conversations didn't happen. One could say they didn't need to happen. One could say they couldn't happen, depending on where, where I was in my life, I would put it in either of those ways or in some other way that was just, they, they didn't happen. Mm. <laughs> um, and then as my mother got older and more um, feeble with first rheumatoid arthritis and then several falls that resulted in broken bones and heart condition and things began to, you know, inevitably start to fall apart, um, I just became all the more aware of her uh, as if I hadn't been before, but I certainly had been, but all the more aware of her, of her, the, the consistency of this strategy of just keeping on, keeping on, and not talking about it, and of its, of its magnificence, really. On the one hand, it was an incredible gift to everyone around her, starting with her children um, and husband, but also of its challenges. You can't talk about it. Yeah. That, you know, is taxing in its own way. One of the effects is, uh, at least, um, I think it was sort of unspoken, at least early in the book, but that you're able to, with your father with dealing with dementia and your mother having suffered a heart attack and falls, uh, that you're able to go across to Italy, live there for 14 months while this yes. is happening. Yes. Um, they, my parents both were adamant with all three of their children right from the start about, you do your own lives. They... They, they were not, and, and my dad is still alive, is not needy in that way of a lot of consistent encountering. And again, family cultures are all different. I have friends who are shocked by this and others who are envious of it. It is what it is. It's how I grew up, what I grew up with. But it's not to say we aren't in touch. We certainly are. Um, but the phone which was what linked my mother and me while I was away, also became problematic because of her hearing. And there's an essay in the book about that as well. So um, I began, began to be aware that she was leaving and that I had left, but that I was feeling left. <laughs> and so there was this peculiar reversal going on where it was almost like she was choosing to leave me. Of course, it wasn't choiceful. It was inevitable, but that sort of old, sense almost from childhood one has of mom don't go away you know um was was there and had to be looked at it was one of the things i had to to see differently yeah i had uh, similar difficulties with my father especially in old age uh, he was hard of hearing so especially telephone conversations became just sort of monologues you just you just listen to yeah. him which was yeah. which was wonderful but i i think both he and we wished we could have had more two-way that bitter sweetness. Yeah. You say something, uh, you, you say it to yourself in the book. Um, don't make so much of being seen. Try rather to see however you can. Yeah. I mean, that's where I, that was, I believe, fundamentally, my mother landed with this. Um, and she would never have articulated it in that way. But I think she was actually a very sightful person, just not with her physical eyes. And um, she, she, was, she was no goddess. She had her limitations of personality and emotion like all of us do. But she was, remained fundamentally very curious and very open-eyed, <laughs> metaphorically open-eyed. And that was, I think, always what she wanted to communicate. And she, my dad said that he felt that my mother just made a pact with herself that and she may have said this to him. I, I don't actually recall if she actually articulated it or if it was his articulation of what he figured she really meant in all of her dealings with him, which was if she were to complain, it would all just fall apart. It would just turn into a sort of rolling snowball of lamentation. And she would lose everything. She would lose him and us and all of it. And my father's an extraordinarily loyal person. I think you'd have to crowbar him out of her life under any circumstances. So the loss would never have been, you know, he wouldn't have walked out. Um, but I think we all knew that this was her way of maintaining a kind of, a, a kind of buoyancy in her life, a kind of lift that if she were to start feeling badly for herself, she would not be able to see anything 
really see anything, and it would just be disastrous for her. So that was something that I I wanted to find a language for as I wrote the book, and it wasn't something that could be said in one sentence. It would have to be gone at through different angles, and that's what I tried to do through my various scenes with her that some in this assisted living community where she and Dad lived and where he still lives, and, and some in other memories, other places. So that's, I mean, that that is that does provide buoyancy. It does provide a lift, right? But but having that culture, there are downsides as well. If you if you can't explore it too deeply, then then perhaps you can't come to terms with it together. I don't know. Yeah, if you ran into yeah. that with your mother. Yeah, that that was the trade-off. Just things I wish I'd been able to share, and and a, a certain pain one is in oneself that one feels is illegitimate because, gee, well, she's got it worse. Who am I to? You know, there's a kind of, um, you get uh, uprooted from your own sense of self when you um, feel like it's inauthentic somehow to have certain strong emotions, that you don't deserve them or they're inappropriate. And it took time to claim them as, as my own. You, uh, you look at grief from uh, different angles. Um, and I, I guess it's you're you're going through your own grieving. You're coming to terms. It's a reckoning with loss, right? The subtitle. But also in general, or or is it or is it always more you know personally what how it affects you? Is it always no, say that? Uh, uh, so so is it you know you're seeing it of course through right. through the prism of your loss. Right. Right. But right. do you think about it in in a more general terms of what you know? Oh, what, in a general what, way. What grief well, is generally. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's, it is a very, uh, it's both a universal experience and a, and a pretty individual one. I, I was observing throughout this whole time my husband's uh, contending, to use that word again, with grief. He had lost his wife of 40 years, um, and that happened not that long before we came together, and quite, quite soon um, after we managed to find our way to a new, what he calls a second life, and very unexpected. She had been one of my closest friends, and I therefore had the privilege as well as the pain of um, having my own grief around her and having Antonio at my side and watching him deal with a grief that was obviously differently inflected because of the many, many years he'd had with her before I even knew her, and because he had adult children, um, has adult children, whose loss it was as well. So, um, you know, that right there was a sort of laboratory of grief happening in our immediate family and in this new new life, new marriage, new, new way forward that he and I found and made with each other. Um, and I was also watching writer friends of mine deal with the losses that we shared of some of the people who died um, during that that ten year period. So I saw a lot of different strategies for coping, and I continue to see that. I also think that it's a truism, but it bears repeating that grief does come in waves and takes on different shadings and colorations and um, emphases. It's not a stable thing. Hmm. Yeah, and, and sometimes people try to impose that from, you know, from the outside, right? You you should be at this place, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, uh, my own experience, again, it's only mine, but after a few of these losses, it felt almost in some ways absurd to someone say, how are you? Well, I lost another friend. I mean, it sort of sounds like dark comedy or something, you know, like hmm. being in the in the in the pinball machine, bang, 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 there they go. And so I, I found I would retreat a lot from explanation or description. And I think people do that when confronted with people who are grieving, when confronted with a sense of incomprehension, among others, they just, they just go to ground, they go silent. And that was part of my problem, that for a writer to go silent when writing is the central activity is, is not healthy. Mm. <laughs> so I was, I was suffering from that as well, mm. from, from the silence, which mm. was self-enforced. No one was making me be silent. Yeah. 
By the way, the, the story of your, you and your husband uh, getting together, it's, it's, it is very hopeful because you could have seen that there would be a, maybe difficulties there that might have been insuperable. Yes, and I think it's just a kind of miracle and um, a, a great beauty in both our lives that this could happen and did happen as it did. So, so utterly unexpected, all of it all of it and there it is Mm. there it was there it is so he never also expected to end up in this little medieval village in a part of italy that was not his that he did not know so it's been a new adventure for us both Mm. just uh, before we take a break i want to uh, this is part of the passage that you read earlier but you're in the cemetery and you're speculating about uh, how these people died and you say they're not your dead I said to myself, as the stories inadvertent and uninvited began piling up in my head, you don't have to grieve for them. You don't know a soul here. It's not your job. They're not, they're not your dead. But the dead that are our dead, they, <laughs> in a way, this put in bold relief for me that they are our yeah. dead. They, they are connected in a certain way, yeah. inseparable, but then but there is a division as well. Well, they are our dead, and then we have to decide in what ways we commune with them. And that was another sort of search in this book for what form would it take. And because a number of my dead were writers, it invariably meant going to their work, communing with them through their own words. That's interesting. So, yeah, the, the, the people you've lost who are writers, you you have that that you can go back to, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. the only way in which I meet them, as it were, um, but it's a pretty important way, and it's, it's a pretty um, salvific way. It's mm-hmm. a pretty consoling way. Did that change after their death? Did it change how you viewed their work, how you read them? I think, I mean, these were, these were writers whose work I admired enormously when they were still with us, and the work is just that much more precious and ripe for me. And I, I love teaching it. I love sharing their work with others. That's that's a big. I always did, but it's all the more, all the more compelling now to do so. What's the, I don't know that compulsion is the wrong word. What what's the desire? What was your desire to to connect or ongoing desire to connect to remember to connect to you know, build some space uh, where you can grieve, to, to hold on, specifically talking about those friends who have died? Well, you know, when I think of, of those individuals I lost, their own, um, their own particular ways of being honest and, and almost, I wouldn't say matter of fact, but just very clear-eyed about their own leavings, um, and, and those leavings were quite different. There was illness, there was cancer, there was, um, there was struggle with drug addiction, and then there was suicide. And I had had dialogues with each of these people before they left about their leaving, and with several others named in the book as well. And so those dialogues are very rich, um, private. Um, my friend Andrea in particular, that was 30 years of a reckoning she was doing with limitations in her uh, life as well as endless openings and, and kind of new visions of her life. She was an extraordinarily complex woman and um, my closest friend for, for three decades. And so there, were, there had been a rich dialogue around the question of mortality beforehand with all of these friends and in different ways. And so I think I returned to that and I'm very aware of the passage that had to be made before, during, and after their leaving that we that we all had to go through, um, and you know, there's there's a section when I talk about Andrea where I, I refer to a, a wonderful poem by Walt Whitman, a noiseless patient spider, where Whitman envisions this spider sort of throwing out its gossamer filaments to make its web, and and just aware that Andrea was doing that in a in a very different way than I was now and that we were you know we were she was moving away she was moving away Mm. and there was nothing to be done but accept it even beforehand and the great gift she gave me during her dying was to acknowledge that and to be in that space with me i don't think that happens as much in our culture as it might Mm. but i think it does happen Mm. and it makes everything 
I won't say easier, but um, clearer, Hmm. cleaner. You think it happens more often than other cultures? That I can't really speak to. Ah, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not. I don't feel like I'm a, an anthropologist of of ways of dying. But I I think here that you know, with hospice and um, a sort of attention to helping families manage, instead of just shutting down or being quiet or pretending, you know, that nobody's really ill or nobody's really dying or or succumbing to just terror. Um, you know, rather than that, there's a there's a sense that this can be done differently, so it doesn't have to be a matter of terror. Mm. I was never terrified. I was extraordinarily sad, but not terrified mm. when I was with my friends who were dying, and I think that had a lot to do with them. A lot to do with them. So they they the, the way they were seeing the experience they were yeah. going through and communicating yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, one more thing about Andrea, interesting passage, um, I can't quote it verbatim, but uh, you talk about how once she's gone, one of the losses that you'll have is the, the, the one thing, a valuable thing we have with good friends and with family, um, and that is that um, it's it's not only shared experiences, it's experiences that we have that then we pass through the, the prism of their experience, right? It's, it's yeah. not real until you go home and tell it to your wife or husband right. or your good right. friend. Right. And that is a big loss. It is a huge one. I, I talk about being relieved so that she wasn't present, so I didn't have to account for myself with her, and yet also being aware that that was a huge loss, <laughs> that I couldn't account for myself with her. You know? um, and I still do. I mean, I still will you know, have a sort of, not exactly a what would Andrea do, <laughs> kind of thing, but uh, just uh, an ongoing curiosity about the particular ways she affected my seeing um, and, you know, what I feel is an ongoing challenge she gives to me in that way and what I feel also limited by now in that because it's, it's old, you know, it's, it's gone, it's past. There's things she doesn't know about me now as there are things that had she lived, I would be finding out now that I couldn't have predicted then. Mm. Let's take another break, come back with our uh, last, our third segment with uh, Martha Cooley. Her latest book is Guesswork, A Reckoning with Loss. More following this break. Tourism wasn't much of a campaign issue last year, but campaign promises do have a way of trickling down. That will inevitably have some sort of impact on the tourism that happens here. I'm Kai Rizdal, sightseeing in Erie. Also, the numbers from Wall Street and the rest of the day's business news. That is next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Philosophy Talk, second-guessing ourselves. I don't trust anyone else's first guess. Why should I have confidence in my own? Because, Ken, second-guessing wastes time, and the second guess is no more likely to be right than the first one. Oh, that's unreasonable. If you have more time and put more thought into it, your answer should be better. Guess again. Second-guessing ourselves. Next time on Philosophy Talk. Join us Tuesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. We're back with our last segment with Martha Cooley. She is professor of English at Adelphi University in uh, New York. Uh, she's author previously of the national bestseller, The Archivist, also author of 33 Swoons. Latest book is Guesswork, A Reckoning with Loss. Uh, Martha Cooley, I definitely want to uh, treat your essay called Casino. Um, this, it's just extraordinary. Uh, you you, you uh, go out at a certain point. I don't know how far away this is from the, the town you're living in, but uh, you look out and, uh, and see the wreck of the Costa Concordia. Costa Concordia, I think, lived in our imaginations for a while after this cruise ship that, that uh, you know, hit rocks and, and uh, sank. The captain famously abandoned ship. Um, and, and here you are looking at the, the wreckage of the Costa Concordia. Yeah. Um, it, the, the Costa Concordia had its, its, uh, its shipwrecking off the uh, island of Giglio, which itself is about an hour ferry ride um, from Tuscany, from the southern part of Tuscany. 
So this is about three and a half, four hours from Castiglione, where my husband and I lived, live. And we were um, spending a couple of some weeks there, uh, several summers in a row, and went to the island after this had happened and were able to uh, obviously get pretty close to this ship, which was enormous. Uh, its massiveness really can't be overstated. And this is a small island. So it, as several of the residents told us, and as I felt continually being there looking at it, it throws off a sense of proportion when one sees something like this in the water that is so outsized and and um, can't really be calibrated to the rest of what you're looking at around you. And this got to something else we've you and I have been talking about during this time, Tom, which is the question of seeing and of how one sees what one sees. And I felt constantly confused and sort of discombobulated looking at this boat from different angles, being in the water swimming and seeing it, being up high seeing it because it's a hilly island. And and I decided that the the boat and what happened to it needed to be in this collection as well, even though it's not specifically related to my personal losses, people died on the boat. Thirty-two people died, um, and it was, of course, a, a loss at multiple other levels as well. For the island, it was very traumatic for the people living there, um, and we knew some of them pretty well. So, it was it was a big deal <laughs> during my my chisura, my my pause, my year away, my sabbatical. This this experience was a big deal, and I, I knew I had to chronicle it in some way. I just want to read, uh, these are just three sentences uh, from that uh, chapter. Uh, You write, At dusk, the boat's an amusement park ride gone topsy-turvy. Midday, a tipped-over toy in brilliant sunshine. At sunset, a blue and yellow hallucination. Middle of the night, a huge dark blotch of sorrow. First thing in the morning, a reminder. This will alter, will not be recalled as it is. It's that last sentence that struck me, will not be recalled as it is. Yeah, I guess that got back to the question of, the dead and what we and this connects with what you and I were just talking about a little while ago what we what we um, return to in memory which can't be fixed or stabilized is always a bit um, wobbly you know memory neuroscientists say memory is kind of it's like opening the file drawer every time you take the file out and look at it and replace it you change the contents And that's just how memory functions. It's notoriously labile and unstable. And anyone knows this if you go back to, say, a childhood home that you haven't seen in decades, and, gee, it looks smaller than you remembered, that kind of thing. And and so I, I knew that I was trying to fix this experience of peculiarity, this massive vessel, um, and and trying to remember it as it was. And I knew that that the memory would change, that the situation would change, and that blotch of sorrow um, would feel different, too, to me, to the islanders, to the people immediately affected, to those who lost the 32 people. It would all be a, a different experience in the moment, in the actuality, and then over time. And and that was um, ending the essay like that also reinforced for me that this book was, among other things, a meditation of anyone's journey through time. And because loss happens in time and through time, this boat and the experience with it seemed a useful um, thing to explore by way of getting at that stuff. We're uh, coming to the uh, end of our time together. I definitely want to have you talk about a fascinating figure that you talk about in the book, the uh, owner of the castle there in the the, the village. Yes. uh, Signor Bononi, uh, tell me a little bit about him and, and a library that he established. Yes, uh, he was a very eccentric and fascinating man, a doctor and then pharmacologist, always a poet, always a lover of literature, who made a great deal of money and bought this rundown castle in Lunigiana, our part of Italy, the tippy top of Tuscany, very hilly and woody, and uh, he reconstructed the castle and was an avid bibliophile, collected a lot of um, incunabula, first editions, rare manuscripts. There's a Dante from the late 15th century, really an extraordinary collection, and um, opened it to whoever wanted to come see it. And we were lucky to know him before his death, which happened during my time, the sabbatical year there. 
Um, we are still, of course, close to his um, partner, who is still in the castle and still opens the gates to anyone who wants to visit the library. Um, so it's it's ongoing. He he is gone, but um, he lives on too as the sort of presiding spirit of our village and uh, certainly of the castle. So it was really a remarkable uh, serendipity that we found this place and that it happened to be for two writers such as ourselves, kind of the the dream castle <laughs> stuffed with books. <laughs> Um, and finally, you've 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 now gone through your sabbatical or uh, chisura. Uh, you're back. Yeah. Um, written the essays. Um, you know, gone through that reckoning with loss. Um, what's what's the biggest uh, takeaway that's, that's on top of your mind at this point? Well, the, the the great pleasure of having done this book of of having. Um, taken myself on a new adventure of writing and of feeling, um, and the privilege of having known and loved the people who are in it, uh, it all kind of combined. I wanted the book to be an homage to my mother and to all those I lost, and so there was that and is that um, that I feel like I can offer this. Um, and it also got me working again <laughs> in a new way, in a fresh way, and that is, um, you know, exceptionally important and gratifying. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that that's my big takeaway. Is there, there's, there a next book coming? There is a novel that I have finished that is making its rounds. So, yes, that the, the, the this book guesswork allowed me to finish that. Okay. Anything you can tell us about the new book? I'm sorry. Anything you can tell us about the new book? Oh, uh, gosh, not. Too much. Okay. I'm one of those. That's usually the case. Um, yeah. <laughs> who get spooked about talking of it, but yeah. but it's done. I I'm, can tell you that. Okay, great. <laughs> I understand. Understand. We've been talking with Martha Cooley, uh, author previously of the national bestseller *The Archivist*, also author of *33 Spoons*. She's professor of English at Adelphi University in New York, and author most recently of *Guesswork: A Reckoning with Loss*. Martha Cooley, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Very much. And Culligan Water of Cache Valley, family-owned and operated for more than years, providing Culligan bottled water, salt delivery, or soft and conditioned water. Hey, Culligan Man, service from the man in blue, online at logan.culliganman.com. I'm Carrie Bringhurst, News Director and Morning Edition host here at Utah Public Radio. Our Utah Public Radio news team serves as a statewide source with reporters in Logan, Moab, Southern Utah, Salt Lake City, and Provo. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at the station, we'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, upr.org, share ideas on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Be sure to include hashtag IamUPR. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.